All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm a vice president at the Aspen Institute and executive director of the Economic Opportunities Program. And I'm delighted to welcome you to today's event, Shop Till Who Drops, exploring retail workers' jobs and scheduling this holiday season. And glad to see you all made it here through the rain and, and miserable weather we're having today. Um, and, uh, I, um, and I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday and have kicked off your shopping season. I thought it'd be a good time for us to think about who's kind of on the other side of the register or the mouse click, as the case may be. Um, we know that right now in the US, uh, working people are facing uh, really extraordinary challenges. Even as the economy has recovered and we're well into actually the sixth year of an economic recovery, uh, work, many working people aren't feeling the benefits of that recovery and are feeling a little bit left behind. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we at the Aspen Institute hosted a, a summit on inequality and economic opportunity. Um, and we looked at really a wide range of challenges that are that are facing people today in the, in the space of um, inequality and economic opportunity. But in the Working in America series, we really have been, uh, for a few years now, focusing on the changing nature of work and what's going on for low and moderate income Americans who are trying to build a livelihood in today's world of work. And in particular, what are some ideas for improving access to economic opportunity and how can people begin to build better livelihoods? Um, we're very grateful to the Ford Foundation, the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, the Serdina Foundation, and the Walmart Foundation for their support of this series. Um, and in today's conversation, uh, as you guessed from the title, we're focusing on retail. And retail, you have a, you have a fact sheet on your, on your chairs. Um, retail is really a large and growing um, employment sector for, for many people. Uh, uh, the most recent figures were over 15 million, actually, the most recent figures of people employed in retail. Um, and this is more than uh, one in 10 working people. So this is a lot of our employment today is in retail. Um, and uh, most of these workers are hourly workers, right? So our, actually, our largest occupation is a retail salesperson. And, um, so scheduling for hourly workers is really important, right? Because having regular and predictable hours means you have a regular and predictable income. Um, and obviously, having irregular and unpredictable hours has those similar imp implications for your income. Um, but how work is scheduled has, has many more implications than, than just income. And, and similarly, for businesses, how work is scheduled has many implications for uh, the for how businesses market themselves and how they um, uh, work with their with their customers and and how they manage to um, uh, succeed and, and turn a profit in, in in a very competitive business segment, um, we've seen a lot about scheduling in the press recently and 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 policy conversations are really starting to look at uh, scheduling as an issue. And today, actually, um, uh, the DC Council is scheduled to introduce the scheduling legislation to improve predictability, predictability of, of workers' hours. So it's um, interesting, interesting co coincidence. It's, so it's really kind of out there in the air to think about what are the opportunities around scheduling and, and how do we think about um, what are the issues to create change. So um, uh, I think that's all I kind of wanted to say by way of introduction, because we really have a, a fabulous panel to, to talk about this issue today. Uh, but my last announcement is to please silence your phones. 
Um, but do please join the conversation on Twitter, whether you're here or uh, watching us via live stream. Our hashtag is TalkGoodJobs. Um, so now let me briefly uh, introduce our, our panelists. Uh, you have their bio, so I'm just going to put names to faces for us. And I'm going to start to my far left with uh, Jody Levin Epstein from CLASP. Uh, sitting next to Jody is uh, Bill Tompkins, Senior Vice President for Human Research. Human Resources at Macy's. Uh, next to Bill is Susan Lambert, Associate Professor, School of Social Service Administration, University of Chicago. And we are delighted to have Teresa Tritch here to moderate the conversation from the New York Times. So thank you all for being here. And thank you all for being here. And Teresa, I'll turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Maureen. And uh, thank you also to Vicki and the other organizers of today's panel on scheduling in retailing. I'm Teresa Tridge with the editorial board of the New York Times. But uh, one thing you don't know about me is that in high school, I was a web dev. And that had nothing to do with the internet, which wasn't invented at the time. <laughs> web devs were girls selected by Webb's department store to work part time in sales, in clothing, in cosmetics, and other departments. The idea was to earn money and to learn retailing from the store's buyers. We designed display windows, and we even uh, uh, did in-store fashion shows, which was a real delight for 16-year-old girls. And that's what I want to emphasize. We were 16 years old. We earned $2.50 an hour. We had a lot of learning opportunities, and we had a lot of flexibility. We were girls, we weren't adults, and we certainly weren't parents at the time. We were part-time. The amount of money we made in the mid-70s is equivalent today to $10.60 an hour. Webbs was not a major retailer. That was opportunity at the time, and it's an opportunity that retailing doesn't provide for a lot of people today, not a lot of young people, and not a lot of the parents and working families uh, that rely on it for their living, uh, such as their living might be in retailing today. I wanted to get a show of hands and see how many people had worked in retailing at some time during their career. Well, I think that's even more than 10% of the room, <laughs> even though it's 10% uh, of the workforce. Um, the problem in retailing today is that hours and pay are too low and too irregular. And the problems that stem from that, I think, are well known to most people uh, in the room. Uh, the, the, it makes the economy weaker than it need be. Because as Maureen pointed out, and we were just saying, more than 10% of the workforce is employed that way. And if 10% of your workforce has low and variable earnings, then you cannot have a prosperous economy. We also know that the results of this low and variable pay is work-family conflict. Uh, negative effects on child development, and other social and public health problems. So it's not just that the people working in retailing are having a difficult time. It's that those difficulties are spilling out over the rest of the economy and society. The New York Times editorial board uh, has taken positions on some of these scheduling issues. The editorial board is in favor of the Federal Schedules That Work Act, and it has also supported similar legislation uh, in the states. The editorial board has also supported the new pending overtime rules that would set the threshold for salaried employees to receive overtime 
where it belongs at about $50,000 a year. Although the fate of, of these and other uh, suggested reforms are, are, are still in doubt. Um, the, in general, the uh, position of the editorial board is that scheduling practices today, that many of the scheduling practices today are unfair and abusive and need to change. So that's what we're here today to discuss and hopefully not only to outline the challenges but also to outline some of the solutions. Uh, we're going to look at it from four points of view. We're going to look at it from the point of view of the employees, from the point of view of the employers, uh, from the point of view of government, and then, if time allows, from the point of view of consumers. Uh, and we will leave time at the end, about 20, 25 minutes, for uh, questions from the audience and questions from online, if you'd like to submit some questions online. So first, I'm going to start with Susan. Uh, Susan has done a lot of research into these issues, and I wanted to ask you, Susan, if you could review for us what the prevalence and the effects are of these irregular scheduling practices. Sure, thank you, and good afternoon, everyone. One of the things that I think is important as we engage in this conversation is to think about schedules in terms of different dimensions. We tend to talk about kind of bad work schedules as as a kind of a, a mass of different dimensions. And so I just want to take a minute to unpack that. Uh, one dimension is whether people are getting adequate hours. Do they get enough hours to earn a decent living? And as Maureen pointed out, the overwhelming majority of uh, workers in retail are paid by the hour. So hours are important to income. Another dimension is stability. And people's schedules can vary in terms of the number of hours they work week to week the timing, mornings, afternoons, nights, and the days of the week. Another dimension is predictability, which is how well can you anticipate when you're going to work and when you're not. And when you've got those fluctuating hours and you also um, don't know uh, when you're going to work, it makes it very difficult to do a lot of different things. Um, and in retail, a lot of, because people are working fluctuating hours, a lot of that predictability depends on how far in advance schedules are posted and how many changes are then made to those schedules once posted. Another dimension is what is called standard or non-standard timing. Um, we've got this idea in our head that, you know, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 is kind of a standard job. Hardly anybody works that anymore. Harriet Presser's work from a long time ago shows that. But in Europe, those non-standard hours are called unsocial time, which I think tells us something <laughs> about what they do to people when they work them. And then the final dimension that I'm going to just mention is schedule control, which can ch change everything. So I might work fluctuate different hours week to week, day to day. But if I'm the one who's controlling it, we call that flexibility. And people want that. But when you don't control the number and the timing of your hours, it feels a lot more like instability than um, um, you know, flexibility. And so what we can see from the national data and from case studies of, of national retailers is that retail workers are at risk for problems on a lot of these different dimensions. And just to provide a little bit of statistics, because I am a researcher, uh, from the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth, so this is a nationally representative sample of 26 to 32 year olds in um, our, our labor market. 87% of them reported that they, uh, the number of hours that they worked in the last month, month varied from week to week. 
and the average amount of hours that it varied from week to week was 10 hours. That's a full day of work and a full day of pay. Uh, in addition to that, 44% said that their employer determines when they'll work without their input at all. And 50% said that they know when they're going to work a week or less in advance. So retail workers and food service workers are both are two of the occupations that are highest risk of not just having one problem with work schedules, but having you know, kind of multiple components that make it very challenging uh, for individuals and families. And that's what we see in the data, as you mentioned. You know, what we see is that when people work fluctuating hours, fluctuating unpredictable hours over which they have little control, we see higher levels of stress, work to family conflict. It makes it very difficult to arrange childcare, to take classes, to study. Um, child development experts tell us it, you know, it makes it very hard to establish the kinds of routines that are good for kids, like a regular bedtime and monitoring homework. Um, and in the U.S., a lot of our um, social programs are based on the number of hours you work. And if you don't get enough hours, and if your hours fluctuate from week to week, that puts you at risk of not being able to qualify for your childcare subsidy, which my colleague Julia Henley studies. And it puts you at risk for not being able to take that unpaid leave <laughs> under the FMLA. And so uh, these um, scheduling practices and hours matter uh, you, know, a, you know, a wide way for uh, individuals and families and, of course, for communities as well. Thank you. Jody. You did a series of audio calls where you talked with some of the people facing these, these uh, circumstances. What were some of the main takeaways that you had from your calls? Well, um, I'd like to offer takeaways <coughs> in three subject areas, uh, child care, post-secondary education, and income instability. But first, an obvious observation is necessary. The Center for Law and Social Policy is focused on low-income families and defining and finding policies that work for low-income families. The obvious observation is that job schedules influence all of us. We're all hard-pressed, even if it's a nine-to-five job, to making all of the rest of it work. Um, the issue is that for those who are struggling to make ends meet, there's no cushion to fall back onto. So that if you're at your job and you have an arrangement for transportation to get back, which is dependent upon your coworker, if you are told to go home right then and there when you arrive at the office or you arrive at the factory, you don't have a way to get back. It's bad enough that you're not getting paid, but it's also awful that you can't get home to do the things that you need to do. So it has a lot of spillover effect. In the childcare topic area, you know, you have a job, you have a child, you have to have childcare. The challenge for low-wage workers is that having, on top of all of that, an unpredictable schedule in whatever dimension it is makes it impossible or very, very challenging to hold on to that childcare arrangement, whatever it is. And for many hourly workers who have these kinds of schedule, volatile schedule issues, it's almost impossible to get childcare at childcare centers. So you become reliant on family and friend and neighbor care. Often it can be great care and it could be a perfect fit for you, but it's not as much of a business oftentimes as a childcare center. Some of those providers are themselves just sort of fragile as businesses. So on top of having a volatile job schedule, your arrangement for childcare can itself be more fragile. 
There's a study from the Restaurant Opportunities Center, not a retail study, but they asked working moms in the restaurant business what happened when their shifts changed. And what they found was fully two out of five of the moms who were interviewed found that a shift change resulted in a problem for childcare. And many of those moms lost their childcare as a result. So it's a big issue. The good news is that the Child Care Development Block Grant, just Block Grant, the major government subsidy program, has been reauthorized. It includes a new provision, a provision that says once a family is determined to be eligible for the Child Care Development Block Grant, fondly known as CCDBG, um, <laughs> then you are um, required as the state to continue eligibility despite any temporary work change and a few other provisions. And there are lots of nuances about this provision, which we won't get into. But what it is, is it recognizes the volatility of the child care, the need for the child care in light of the volatile job schedule. So that's a really important thing. And hopefully, it's going to make a difference. And hopefully, states are going to implement this right. So if you're sitting back there and going, OK, we can check off the child care problem no longer. It's not a problem anymore because Jody just said the CCDBG program has this provision in it. Uh-uh. That's not the case. Because the truth of the matter is, is that very few children, very few families um, in the United States of America get subsidized child care through the Child Care Development Block Grant. In fact, um, it's at the lowest level. This is really an astonishing factoid. <laughs> Participation in the nation's subsidized child care program is at its lowest level in history. Um, even before it reached the lowest level, the department had estimated that fewer than 18% of eligible families were getting access to the child care development broad grant. So a problem unsolved, but a provision that's going to help those who are, in fact, getting the child care development broad grant. On the post-secondary education issue, got to say this is not chopped lever. We have a lot of students. The majority of students in our post-secondary education system are workers. Fully three quarters are, are workers. And 20% of those um, are working full-time year-round. That's really impressive. But you have a double whammy here. It's a double whammy because you have a job schedule that can be volatile and courses schedules that can be volatile. How do you manage both of those at the same time? Well. Lots of different possibilities. You want both employers and you want your education institutions to be responsive. On the employer side, um, here at the Aspen Institute, there's a project called, help me here, Upskills or Skill Up, Upskills. Up Upskills, thank you very much. <laughs> Upskills, which tries to identify and help employers who want to do the right thing to do the right thing by way of careers and skill building. And one of the Aspen Institute recommendations is to take into account um, job schedule, be more flexible so that someone can, in fact, skill up and go to school or take something at the uh, place of employment that upgrades their skills, make their jobs more flexible. We interviewed an employer a manufacturer based in Minnesota. And basically, 7% of her uh, employees are given flexibility on an individualized basis by her as a manufacturer in the heartland of the United States so that they can advance their own skills. Why does she do this? Because she believes it's both important for her business to have people supported in their mission to upgrade their skills, and everybody needs to in order to advance, um, but also because she's so committed to having an environment like this that she's not bothered by the idea that she'll create a flexible, individualized work plan for that person who may, in fact, leave her 
for another positions elsewhere. So that's a really, really big commitment. On the education institution side, what we heard from are simple steps like something called block scheduling. Mm -hmm. Under block scheduling, you know, your classes are going to be every day, let's say from 9.30 to 2.30, or from 1 to 5, mm -hmm. but every day the whole year. So the student knows, the employer knows, you can make it work. It's very doable. It was done in the Tennessee uh, Tech College system, and it's rolling out because there's keen interest in other community college systems, not just in Tennessee, but they're getting visitors from Ohio, they're getting visitors from everywhere. So this is picking up as a, a strategy for employers uh, and, and for uh, colleges to, to address. Now, on income instability, you know, this is underlying all of these issues. It's, as you were saying, Susan, it, it's just the volatility of the schedule means a volatility in income. And what does that translate into? Huge challenges for family stress. And the piece that really stands out for me is a piece of research by Maureen Perry Jenkins um, in Boston, Boston College. No, she's uh, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Ah, I goofed. Okay. <laughs> Maureen, I take it back. Um, in any event, what she's done is she's looked at a cohort of low-wage working families beginning at pregnancy and following years out. And what she's found is that when someone's working in an volatile environment for scheduling, for shift changes, with unsupported, unsupportive managers, this creates stress for the worker. Duh. What it also does, and what she's also found, is that six years out, mm -hmm. she's assessed from teachers' reports the status of the child and the mental health of the child and the performance and behavior of the child. And those children whose parents were stressed by their work environment are out of control. She wouldn't use those words, but they are behavior problems in class. The good news that she found, though, is if you address those challenging work conditions, the children behave better. So there's a solution. It, it's not rocket science. The other thing that I want to just quickly mention is that the other challenge, also obvious but not really internalized enough, is that if you're job is volatile, your income is volatile, your ability to budget is non-existent. How do you know at the beginning of the month that you're going to be able to pay the rent? What choices do you make around food and clothing? How do you manage the budget? Well, you simply cannot. And what we've discovered from the Federal Reserve Board study is that income volatility is not unusual in our nation. About one-third of Americans experience income volatility. That's a huge number. But what they also found is that 40% of those who experience income volatility attribute it to their schedule mm -hmm. at the job. So this is not a small issue as well. And these are issues that we need to address systemically because the service industry is where we're seeing our jobs of the future. So we require a systemic solution. Thank you, Joyce. Bill? I hope that you're feeling very welcome here as a representative <laughs> from Macy's. I am, thank you. I was a Macy's you employee. <laughs> You fed me well so yes. <laughs> And now we're killed. <laughs> I think I fed me a little, yes. Um, well, we all know Macy's from the shopper's point of view. Um, 
And I hope we don't know Macy's from the employee's point of view, because what we're hearing about the employee's point of view is that it's quite dismal. But I know that Macy's has made some changes. Macy's has made some reforms. Um, tell us first, what, what are the values, and not just the values, because we would expect that you're going to say honesty and respect and things like that, but the values and the business imperatives that you have to keep in mind when you're managing the Macy's workforce. Right. No, thank you, and thanks for the opportunity. And uh, I would counter a little bit about the, the dismal experience, because I think we've, okay. we've um, made a lot of in, tremendous inroads over the last five or six years, because, um, and surprisingly, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with the comments that, that came up here, because we heard that from our employees five and seven years ago about schedules and about volatility in schedules, about Un unpredictability about who has the control of the schedule. Is it the, the manager or the employee? And you know, through the process of uh, engagement surveys every year with our with our mm -hmm. employees, we have a 175,000 employees in our in our organization, um, of which about 80,000 are part are part time. So a very uh, mm -hmm. large uh, part time workforce. We hire about 85,000 people. I think this holiday season mm -hmm. for. Uh, for the holidays. So we heard um, five, six years ago about the concerns people had about their scheduling and how it impacted uh, their engagement and also their ability to serve the customer. Because if they're not, um, if they're not satisfied at home and if they're, they're struggling and stressed at home when they come into the workplace, then they're not going to be um, helping the customer in a way that's going to help our whole organization grow and help that, that customer ultimately. So what we, um, what we found, and also when you think about society in general, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about, because I started out at uh, you know, Jack in the Box in the 1970s at $1.85 an hour. Mm -hmm. Where's that income equality? I know, come on. Uh, you know, Fashion show. <laughs> and, and worked in, uh, in, in, in a legacy Macy's company in Flushing, Queens and, uh, for, for years in the domestics department. I guess I didn't dress well enough for, for men's suits or something. But uh, you know, so I, I experienced it growing up. And I think having, being in a company that's, uh, I guess, about 158 years old and having many of our, many of our executives start out in the in the rank and file, if you will, either out of college or our uh, prior CEO, uh, Jim Zimmerman, started out in the loaning docks for the organization. So I think you have a, an appreciation of understanding of what's going on on the, on the floor. So through the surveys that we, we received a lot of feedback on, um, we, and it was creating stress for our managers who had to produce schedules as well, uh, produce stress on the employees because they were being, in essence, you know, at the whim of the manager, if you will, back you know, in the control of the business. And we knew that we had to change the paradigm, that we had to create a model where the employees can have the flexibility and control over their, their schedules and, and be able to work the hours that they, that they choose. So it, it took um, a bit of a leap of faith, but we developed a, a strategy uh, called My Schedule Plus. Um, at, you know, at Macy's where we have basically someone who joins the company or is working at the company um, can sign up for five different types of schedules. Um, one of them could be five days a week, four days a week, three days a week, or, or I'll just take hours when I want to take. Um, and before they even start, they tell us the days that they're not available to work um, so that the restrictions are, are there out of the, out of the get-go. Um, and what will happen is if I'm picking a, a five-day schedule, I might be assigned two or, two or three days within my availability. 
but, uh, and someone with a three-day schedule might have one day on their availability. But then they basically use their, their mobile phone um, to pick up shifts um, through the rest of the week of when they would like to work. Um, and basically, they will choose, well, if I have childcare issues and I want to work uh, mornings, but I could work a Saturday evening, or I, uh, my spouse is home on the weekend and I can, I'll take the weekend hours and, um, and then take, take time off during the week. Um, it was a, a quite a bit of a, a leap of faith, in a sense, of how do you shift the paradigm from let me put out your schedule to let me get, let you let you pick a schedule that's available, you know, nine to sixteen days ahead of ahead of time. Um, in fact, for holiday this year, we've published seven weeks of schedules already done. So it's not a question of when am I working on December thirteenth. I know today when I'm working on December thirteenth, um, and and so how do you build that? And we found. By putting that in place, the engagement levels started to dramatically um, increase in our, in, our, in our rank and file. Uh, managers felt better about their jobs because they weren't put in that situation of they could coach and work on engagement. And also, it, it, our operations people, because a lot of times people, you know, when you're looking from the outside in, you think, well, HR must be doing this. But, you know, big stores are operational engines, right? I mean, it's, you know your sales a year, hopefully as far in advance as possible, the scheduling, the costs and whatnot. So how do you collaborate with our operations people and HR people to create an environment of, of in a sense, trust and empowerment in our, in our workforce that they know that, gosh, by allowing the employees to pick their shifts and do these kinds of things, then that will be something that uh, we'll still be able to open the store and run the store. And I have to say, you know, through all of that, uh, that angst and change initially, we have 98% of our shifts covered through this program. Um, you know, Thanksgiving was a voluntary day, you know, to be able to open. Associates volunteered to say, I'm coming in that day. And, and, and most of them use that to take Black Friday off and say, I've never shopped on Black Friday in retail in my life. I'm, I'll work Thanksgiving evening, but I'm going to be able to go out at, I don't know why, five in the morning to go shopping the next day. You know, but, um, you know, and, uh, but they, those kinds of things, just by creating that sense of, so it's not, for us, it's not just a, 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 you know, a, a scheduling and productivity issue. It's a trust and empowerment issue of, of, of giving people that, uh, I'll call it, as Secretary Perez calls it, that voice uh, of in, in, in the workplace. And we have this in place in our, uh, you know, our 35, I think we have 35 stores that are covered that have union contracts. We have this in our non-union stores. You know, across the country, and it and it works. You know, it works quite well for us. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm here, I mean, I'm I really, and we met with the Secretary of Labor back in July, and it was how do we create a forum to to, to at least share some of these practices that are mm -hmm. uh, you know more more broadly, and and use it as a as an uplifting strategy. You know, not a, you know not necessarily a stick strategy, if mm -hmm. you will. Let me ask one follow up before we move on to the next section about the retailer's point of view. If someone signs up for a three-day work week, do they get three days' worth of work? They might only have one day that's scheduled by the store, but do they get two other days by, by phoning in? If they schedule, well, phone in, or they actually get it through, the web, through their mobile app. Yes, so through they, their mobile app. So yeah. tip, there's always hours to be gotten. Um, and actually, um, our biggest challenge is not necessarily filling the hours. It's ensuring every month um, our associates can choose a, an unavailable weekend as well, so which okay. is unheard of in retail. So they have flexibility of scheduling without variability of wages. Correct. 
Correct. They're able to pick. Um, so today we will have, you know, and you might have people picking up extra hours. So if a sale comes in and people already maybe have their five days, but they say, wow, look at this. There's a, there's a shift and I'm available this Saturday that came open from an extra sale. They'll be able to just use that marketplace and, and take that. Or the other piece of it is, you know, 40% of our employees are either under the age of 25 or over age 60. It's a, it's a pretty big group. So the flexibility piece, I think Susan mentioned that as the last dimension, has become very important. And I know, you know, if I procrastinated in school and said, I really got to work on that term paper Thursday night that's due on Friday, and I, I could put my shift up to swap mm -hmm. on Monday, and I'll have other people be able to pick that shift, uh, you know, at, close to the, I don't say the last minute, yes. but if it, is, if it is available for me, and I, I can do that without any, you know, any repercussions or impunity. And I think the other aspect that allows us the flexibility you're talking about, we had to break the model of, gee, I'm, I can only work in, in domestics, in housewares, in, in women, in juniors, or what have you. Mm -hmm. we're, we're working hard at allowing people, and doing it today, of taking hours across the store. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily you're bound to one department that may not have a big seasonal push. So not only taking hours across the store, but we're now actually, um, I would say beta testing, or we're, we've started already, taking hours in nearby stores uh, for Macy's. So if I am in a, you know, a, a location where I can commute to another Macy's store, I can also pick up hours in, in other stores. So all of that can, is a win-win, because we can give the associate you know, the hours that they need based, built on their core schedule um, and, and also the flexibility of the company to meet its, its needs for the consumer. Great, thank you. Um, I want to start with Susan again to discuss this from the retailer's point of view. And based on your research and your work with companies, including The Gap, um, which has gotten some positive publicity for some of the changes they've made in their scheduling lately, why do employers feel that they need to use this kind of irregular scheduling? And are they really boosting the bottom line? Or are they mistaken about that? Okay. Well, I'm going to start by identifying two factors that are not, I think, root causes of this that um, are often, I think, implied in discussions. And one is that the reason that these practices happen is that managers and corporate staff do not care about workers. And I think, as Bill just demonstrated, and certainly in my experience, we're talking with people in corporation, it's just not that. From the top of the corporation to the frontline managers, people feel like it's a have to. We have to do this because we have to stay competitive. We have to keep our labor costs tight. And, and so it's, and then when you talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, They'll say, yeah, let's try something new. I wish we had time to do that. I wish we could you know, change it. So that's one thing that is, it's just not that. And the other thing is you also hear, well, this is what workers, workers today want, right? They want this kind of flexibility. Well, they might want flexibility. But most people do not say, can I have one of those jobs where my hours are going to vary from week to week? And Oh, no, you just go ahead and decide that and make it a surprise. <laughs> people do not request that. Um, and, you know, and, and people will also say it's teenagers. Well, we know that the majority of people working in retail, 
retail are not teenagers. And even teenagers don't want this. I mean, we complain all the time, or we are so concerned, right, about the levels of debt that students are taking out. Most of these young people are working because they need to work, and they need the money just like the rest of us. So those are things that it's not. The reason that we've seen these practices over time is one is that they're institutionalized. When I worked at Sears, I have to pull out my retail background too, <laughs> for six years. Uh, uh, five of them full uh, part-time, one of them uh, full-time. You know, our schedules were posted the Thursday before the work week, and then everybody traded by Sunday, you know. Um, and, you know, and that's how things have been done. The difference, though, is that at that time in the Sears stores that I worked in, about 80% of the people were full-time, and about 20% of us were part-time. That is not the case now. In the, in the stores that I study, usually, you know, only the managers are full-time. You know, only the head store manager will be paid by a salary. Everybody else is hourly, and even, you know, the full-time workers don't necessarily get, get full-time hours. So what is driving this is a focus on trying to make a profit through trying to contain costs. And that kind of focus gets driven right down to the front lines of firms where the, those frontline managers are giving a staffing budget. They get so many dollars for how many hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars their store or their department sales. They get so many hours that they can use depending on how much merchandise they have to, our inventory they have to move. And they're held accountable for that. And at the same time, of course, they're also held accountable for meeting those sales targets. And not having enough hours and having to sell a lot creates very creative processes in terms of ways to keep labor really flexible so that you hire a lot of people who you can schedule for short shifts during you know, times of peak demand, who you can then say, can you stay a couple of hours longer or, you know, or you know, don't come in today. So you kind of keep that you know, very flexible. And, um, and so if we look at it, it kind of makes sense in terms of how accountability works. I think the key question, though, is how much labor flexibility do employers need? How unpredictable is labor in retail? How unstable is it? And Phil just gave an example of Macy's is able to post a schedule seven weeks in advance. And right, and you have a lot of good forecasting that goes into that. That's the same thing that we find in our research and that operations researchers find as well, is that it's the variations that we think of in terms of use of labor in retail isn't as great as commonly believed, or at least as I commonly believed before I started doing this kind of research. Just to give you a quick example from a national women's retail apparel chain that we've studied, if, if when we, ha we have actual payroll hours that are used for 80 stores, and so this is, you know, how many hours are actually used for each minute of 2012. And when you look at the stores, the most extreme weeks, so let's say the week where there's the most labor used, that was last week, which is Good Friday week, and then the week compared to the week where there's the lowest number of hours used, that's about usually like the third week in January after everybody's brought back their ugly sweaters and you've got something new and you've got your credit card statement and you're in shock. Right? And so for the majority of stores, for like 70 or 80% of the, these stores that we've studied, that difference is 
less than 30%. And for the majority, it's less than 20%. So that means that 80% of the number of hours used week in, week out is the same. <laughs> and when we look week to week, it's over 90% the same from week to week. And those forecasts that managers got at the beginning of their month in terms of how many hours they were likely to need each week were over 90% accurate. If they had just gone with those hours that they've gotten and staffed their, their staff that way, they would have been over 90% accurate without all the schedule adjustments, <laughs> as they call them, mm -hmm. that were made all the time. And so, um, you know, and software vendors will brag about this. They'll say, hey, I can predict demand, not a month in advance. 16 weeks, six months in advance with over 90% accuracy. So it seems to me, right, there's just a lot more stability and predictability that's already in retail, that we can find new ways to pass that on um, to workers in a way that, um, you know, is better for the managers and also better for workers. But right now, accountability mechanisms focus managers' attention on the 10% or the 30% instability in labor, rather than focusing their attention on the 90% or the 70% stability. And I know that you know uh, profit margins in retail are considered to be quite tight, but it just seems pretty inefficient to focus everything around you know, that small proportion instead of focusing on the larger proportion, especially when that, you know, kind of, that kind of focus comes at with the cost of higher turnover, lower and lower engagement. Um, so, thank you. Jody, in your audio calls, you also spoke with employers. So what were the takeaways from employers? What leads some employers to engage in you know, flexible, humane, respectful uh, scheduling and, and others to, um, to make life difficult for the workers? An anecdote, it's a really good question. Um, I got a chance to interview the HR director for Costco. Susan, you were on that call as well. And I'll never forget, um, we were talking about how at Costco there's a minimum hours provision, which is a very critical provision for workers, so that they know they have a set minimum number of hours that they are going to work, and it's 24. And he described how their system worked and how it has been beneficial in terms of employee retention and part of their culture and so on and so forth. So I did a follow-up question and I thought I was going to really learn. I said, you know, what was the aha moment that led Costco to decide to in fact offer a minimum number of hours to its workers? And he paused and he said, well, Jim Senegal always wanted it that way. And this is, of course, the founder and uh, president for CEO for so many years. And that was really exciting, but it was also fundamentally depressing because it occurred to me that maybe you had to be genetically coded to have this orientation. And it was really, really worrisome. But there is a huge business case and I think the big problem, part of the big problem, is that businesses too often 
are looking at too short ledgers. They need longer ledgers that look at what Susan was discussing, which is this question of retention. Because one of the biggest cost drivers for employers is when they lose employees. And many, many employers are oriented to thinking, you know, I can just do a replacement in a low wage end. I only, I, they think this way for their C-suite and their higher end, higher paid employees, but they don't think about this for their lower wage workers. Studies have shown that this is faulty reasoning. There is a huge business case. One study found that for employees at $50,000 and under, fully 20% of that wage could be calculated as the cost of, of, of turnover. So it's not bupkis. It, it's a real number, and it should be on that ledger as they're looking to what kinds of policies to, to implement. And employers are changing uh, what they're doing, um, and but for different reasons. So I want to tackle just a few um, companies and their change and say how come this happened recently. And many of these articles you may have read in the press because the press is covering this issue a great deal. At Victoria's Secret, for example, they ended on call. Why? Part of the reason is that the Retail Action Project based in New York City had for some time done demonstrations outside of Victoria's Secret. The other part of the explanation is that the Attorney General's office in New York State had sent to about 13 companies a little note saying, hey, we have in New York State and have had for some time a law called reporting pay. And we want to know about your practices to ensure that what you're doing is within the scope of law. Please get back to us. Well, Victoria's Secret, they ended their on-call, as did five other of the 13 companies so far. So lots of dynamics going on there. Starbucks announced they were ending clopening. That's the uh, policy and the practice in which one person not only closed the store, but maybe a few hours later was opening the store as well, clopening. Um, why did it end? I'd say it was Jody Cantor's story in the New York Times um, in which she exposed this story, which resulted in the CEO immediately saying, um, we're going to end this practice. I don't like it. And in fact, I didn't really understand that it was happening. Why did he do that? Well, in part, it was damage control. But I also think, in part, he probably didn't appreciate that it was happening exactly as it was described in the New York Times and affecting so many of his employees. And I think this is an interesting observation. There's no really solid feedback loop that's happening in some of these companies in which the CEO and some of the higher folks are understanding what's happening at the ground level in an adequate and sufficient way. They may be doing 360s, but they may not be asking the right questions. At Walmart, Walmart this year um, raised wages for 500,000 employees. Why? Lots of different reasons. Part of it the work on the ground by our Walmart, former employees, existing employees who were mobilizing around these issues. Another and different kind of illustration is Zazie. Zazie is a cafe in, in San Francisco. And there, um, Jennifer Pilot, the owner of this cafe, changed her policy on on-call at the request of her employees, a direct request of her employees. The on-call system had only been for um, employees getting coverage when another employee called out sick. And she made it a system that worked for the employees. One last one is Buy Right. Buy Right is a grocery and food 
provider in San Francisco. Again, San Francisco has a law on retail um, scheduling issues. They are not subject, this food store, to um, those provisions. They decided, though, the law made sense, and so their practices are changing to infuse their operations with as much as possible those kinds of provisions. And Bill, one yes. question for you from the employer perspective. You explained how Macy's did it. Excuse me. You're red, yes. You explained how Macy's does it. And you also mentioned that you had met with Secretary uh, Perez to discuss how other companies might do it. Does Macy's have a plan to become a leader in this? Does Macy's have a plan to become known for this in a way that might help their sales or help their corporate image? Is there a way that you see to take this Macy's uh, paradigm and make it the norm for other big retailers? Well, great question. I hope you're all going to go out and shop now today <laughs> based on what you heard today. No, but I, you know, I, I, you know, it's interesting because I think um, and maybe Susan, you were alluding a little bit. Nobody's going out to be, you know, inflexible and in, in all of those things, and there's different pressures. So I think Macy's can, one, you know, we've established our what, what I feel is a competitive advantage in this area to get great talent, right? Because mm -hmm. first, our jobs in retail are getting more and more complex. Um, even you're going to talk about consumers later. Imagine how many coupons you're walking into a store <laughs> with, and and not only that, you have, I mean, moving from a sort of brick and mortar retail company, you know department store, right, to a omni-channel retailer where people are shopping in their pajamas at 1 a.m. or buying online and coming into the store and doing those kinds of things. The whole environment is changing. We need people that are that can, can, that can service the customer. They're fulfilling product many times when the store is opening. So when, when people are ordering online, they may, it, some of it may come from a distribution center, but some may come from, you know, a, a store in, uh, in Queens, New York, where the sales associate will go actually pick it and, and actually uh, prepare it for shipment to send out, um, you know, to the, to the customer. So the jobs are getting more and more varied, so it, it becomes a, a real competitive advantage when we can create an environment where it's not just the wage rate, but it's the hours and the predictability and the money you can you can take home, right? It's uh, mm -hmm. who was that commercial that say it's not how much you earn, it's how much you keep or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And trying to create that that environment really helps. And and I think from that meeting with Secretary Perez uh, back in July, you know, we talked about ideas of how we could share share information. You know, mm -hmm. how we can whether it be through websites of, of put, uh, allowing other companies to put best practices out, so we could all we could all learn because I think people do want to create compelling value propositions for their mm -hmm. associates um, and learn from each other and learn, you know, um, just wrestling what we did, as I said, where the, you know, managers, when I grew up in retail and others, had the control and they thought control was scheduling. And I think what's, what's happened since I started working and everyone where information and control have really shifted from, let's say, companies or institutions to the consumer and to to people, right? Mm -hmm. Where I have people walking into stores today with more information about the product they're buying, right? I walked into the men's suit department in San Francisco, your favorite store, you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and I remember the person who's been there like 30 years looked at me and said, can you stop people from walking in here with their cell phones? They know yeah. the prices of every, you know, of all the other competitors and, and whatnot. So this information, where the rest of our lives, we're getting more and more control 
but yet in the scheduling side, we didn't have that. And I think mm -hmm. Macy's, at least in that area, said that's a, that paradigm has to change. So long answer to your short question, I, 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 A, I do want it to be brand building for us and, and make it a value proposition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we tend not to go out and broadcast a lot of things and just, be, just do the right thing where we can. Um, but um, we're also available um, to share with, with other organizations how, how we did it. Uh, there was a timekeeping uh, conference in Las Vegas. I sent one of my team members out there a few weeks ago, as, and he became, all of a sudden, he talked about this, and they wanted him to be the keynote speaker. So, you know, and, and so these things, we hope, can, can help some other companies learn learn and grow from this. Very good, thank you. I want to take about five more minutes, so we have time for questions, uh, to talk about the government uh, side of this and what government might be able to do, what they should be doing, um, what they might be on the verge of doing, if if only. Uh, so Jody, I was hoping you could take us through uh, what may be uh, happening on the federal level or in the states uh, that is worth promoting or, um, or perhaps most hopeful in this space. I think what's most hopeful is the sheer volume of activity. We do have proposed legislation at the federal state level and at the city level. We have the federal proposal called the Schedules That Work Act. We have uh, bills that have been introduced in 10 states. Um, we have bills that have been introduced um, in three cities and one that's in fact in place in one city. One city, the San Francisco Retail Bill of Rights is in, in play. Um, we have a bill introduced today in DC and we've had activity in Minneapolis and Albuquerque. Um, you can get all of this information at CLASP's National Repository on Scheduling Policy, which is a one-stop shop for every question you might have ever asked and wanted to know the answer to about job <laughs> scheduling. And we're afraid to ask, and you just click away and you can get, get your answers on that. And it gives the laws themselves if you want to take a, take a look, quick look at that. The proposals themselves, to just do a quick rundown on what those are, um, fall into two buckets. There's one bucket called the right to request scheduling flexibility. And this is a provision which actually is in law in Vermont as well, which basically says an employee has the right to ask for a scheduling change. Doesn't sound particularly strong. Um, it is just the right to request, not necessarily the right to receive. The Scheduling the Work Act proposal at the federal level gives some groups the right to receive, although the employer if he has a bona fide reason, can get out of that requirement. The virtue of this provision um, and this policy is that it addresses one of the fundamental bottom line problems in this whole area related to job schedules and volatile jobs, which is retaliation. We've been talking to a higher road employer, um, and we're hearing about some of those. But what you often hear the stories at the ground level is an employee who says, I have a college course I need to take. I need a little bit of flexibility. The moment she asks for that, she then finds that her favorite shifts no longer are given to her. This is a fundamental issue that we have got to address, and this provi those provisions deal with that as do some of the others. The, the laws that we're seeing uh, proposed around the country um, do and get at m the issues that Susan raised so that with regard to scheduling, advance notifications there, um, and how much an employer has to pay 
a employee who has a shift change made at the last minute. Um, those kinds of predictability things apply as well with regard to on-call and reporting pay, um, uh, health provision re related to re uh, right to uh, rest, access to hours. We're seeing provisions that give employees who are qualified and working part-time first dibs on new jobs that are fuller time or new hours. Um, and for all of these bills that are being introduced around the country, a fundamental issue is the scope of the legislation. Is it going to be just about retailers, or is it like, for example, in DC, going to be about the food service industry and retail, or is it going to be universal? Thank you. And uh, Susan and Bill, is there anything that would not be helpful? Is there anything that's going on that could actually uh, set back the effort or that is so off point that it's maybe not a direction that's worth, uh, worth pursuing? So I think we're going to have different views here. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I've had to start sometimes, Susan. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah. My view is that um, our government has so few labor standards that there's just not much that I would be against them doing <laughs> at, at, at this point, and that um, I would hope, you know, to me that's kind of a problem we need, I hope, some year to be writing about, like, oh, the government needs to stop setting so many standards on ensuring that Americans have high-quality jobs. Yeah. Um, you know, we're just so far away, so no, not from my perspective, but. Okay. <laughs> God, all two of those high-quality jobs, thank you. No, but, um, no, I, I, listen, the way I'm, I'm really here from Macy's to tell, to tell our story, and at least from, from my perspective, um, legislation itself is, is in many cases, um, I don't call it detrimental is a bad word, but it's, it's, it's get, it can get in the way of the actual needs of your own workforce. So I don't want to, not all workforces are equal. Each retailer faces different challenges. I'm, you know, again, blessed to be in an organization that has 175,000, you know, that people and stores that you can commute to and create flexibility. And, and we have, uh, you know, great programs in place. But even things, unintended consequences of some of the legislation. So, for example, even in, in the San Francisco legislation, one of the challenges that sets back our employees, in a sense, is, uh, you know, even within the, I think it's a 21-day limit, if you, if, even if an, an employee says, I got to do that term paper and I want to change my schedule, that becomes a challenge in the... No, in, employees in can swap in San Francisco. But we can talk about that all Yeah, line. we talk about yeah. that. And, uh, <laughs> so the challenge is, but we see that in a lot of uh, you know, areas. We, we want to be able to listen to the voice of our employees. We, so I think we all agree on what we're trying to create here. We're trying to create an engaged workforce where people can feel uh, that they're, you know, they, they have some stability of, of time and wages. And I think it's just maybe the path that we will differ on, on, on what it needs to get there, because I think we want to get there in the best way, which is about engaging our, our workforce. And we, so we feel it, it, you know, external legislation out is, is, is not needed, but we do feel sharing best practices, creating these kinds of forums and dialogues to have these kinds of discussions mm -hmm. are, very, are very valuable. We shouldn't shy away from them. We should continue these. Okay, thank you.
Um, before we open it up for questions, uh, we have about 20 minutes for questions. Um, we wanted to uh, briefly ask the panelists what they would have consumers think about over this holiday uh, season as they go out shopping. And we already know that Bill. I mean, I'm a little biased shop in that at Macy's. regard. Yeah. So, and, and you should. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, that's um, an editorial comment. Yeah. So we've been endorsed. We've been endorsed. That's, that's from me. Always. Okay. Please. Um, if, if you would like to chime in, and you can think about your questions in the meantime, and then we'll go for a show of hands for the questions. Well, Any last-minute advice for consumers? Well, I don't think it's advice, but I think it is. Um, I think it highlights the need for more transparency by employers. I would love to have a guide that tells me about the scheduling practices at Macy and that Macy's, for example, and other retailers, and that has hard numbers in terms of how far schedules are posted and what percentage of the workforce gets regular hours. And I would use that when I shop because, you know, we have a lot of, we are a very fortunate nation, many of us here, not all of us here in this nation, for sure, but those of us who do, we have a lot of options. And that would, but I, there's no list, there's no way that you can know. All we can do is we get things from the press saying that we've stopped on calls, we've stopped this, but we don't know what that really means mm -hmm. in terms of the quality of, okay. of jobs. Okay. So Susan's absolutely right. There's not an app for that, um, but there is, an app, <laughs> there, there is an app right now for high road restaurant tours that the uh, Restaurant Opportunity Centers put out. Um, and there is on the Main Street Alliance um, website a Shop Your Values list, which is employers who are supportive of the variety of policy issues um, related to paid leave and so on and so forth that highlight those employers who stepped up in that regard. Um, so we do need an app for that. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe we can work on that together. Um, um, but I do think that as you go to a store, maybe take the message Susan's saying to the floor manager to say, I'm a consumer. I would really love it if your store were transparent about your scheduling and related policies because I want to shop here. I come here all the time. And I could tell my friends to come if I could point to the things that you do to make life reasonable for your workers. OK, very good. Questions? Yes, this gentleman. Uh, one group that wasn't mentioned was the owners. And I just wonder if there's been any outreach to like the Council of Institutional Investors and pension funds. Uh, because it's pretty clear it's more profitable when you do have an employer-powered uh, type of uh, scheduling and stuff. So I just wonder, can somebody mm -hmm. doing outreach to them Uh, it's, it's on my to-do list now. Mm. <laughs> Thank uh, you so yeah, much, yeah. sir. Yeah. Skip. Yeah. skip. The, Thank you, the, Skip. The only thing I would actually add to that, and I think you called it out about thinking of the, the short game or the long game, right? And it is, we feel that it is a better investment for institutional investors and other shareholders that when you have an engaged workforce that has these kinds of things that we're talking about, to actually service the customer in a better way. So I, you know, I, I do think it's not a, you know, the fact that our employees can have flexibility on their schedules and predictable doesn't mean the shareholders lose. It means we can all create a bigger company together, you know, a bigger company together, I hope. In the back. 
Um, I'd like to uh, bring um, a broad, the, the issue of globalization into the, the discussion and ask you a question about unions, which hardly came up in the conversation. Um, it seems to me that by dint of globalization's impact on retail, and here I'm thinking about what they used to call the China price, the fact that so many uh, retailers had to meet a, a price that was much lower than uh, ha had been the case before uh, uh, the expansion of, of, of global trade, uh, particularly with Asia, um, that there's only a few ways that that, that, that um, that that can come out in the context of this discussion. Lower wages, higher productivity, or lower profit margins. You have to squeeze one of those. And what I kind of hear from the conversation, or I know from my own work here, is that the squeeze has been on labor costs, in some cases through what we would sort of think of as abusive scheduling. So you, you, you can see, think of a role for unions there to help uh, offset uh, the pressure uh, on labor costs, given that the workers' bargaining power in this sector tends to be very low. I also hear kind of a struggle to maybe um, offset some of that, quote, China price uh, through productivity gains, which is another uh, uh, a way. You, you, you hear little about trying to squeeze profit margins because, again, there's a power dynamic there. So I wonder if you could reflect on those reflections. <laughs> well, Bill, some of the yeah. workforce uh, at Macy's is unionized, yes. and some of it is not. So we have right. So, so what we, is the role? So, well, one, we 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 care about an engaged workforce, regardless of whether they're okay. they're they're unionized or non-unionized. And 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 you're right. To some extent, you know, when we look at uh, retail today, I mean, on one end, you, consumers, in a sense, are controlling pricing, right? You know, we're, we're in a deflationary environment with, you know, uh, var various effects. We're, we're not, you know, a sweatshirt today is probably less than it was, you know, last year. And then on the, the flip side, you have shareholders saying, I need a return and dividends and, and all of those things. And how do you create a model by which you can sustain a business, right? And there's a lot of retailers that haven't been able to, you know, to do that model. And, 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 and for us, it's, um, you know, one, it's about, broadening our channels of distribution. So I'll, you know, I think, um, you know, if you go back seven or eight years in, in retail, even for ourselves, if you had, you know, great store managers, good merchants and good planners, if you will, where how many, you know, how many pieces go where, you, you can win, you know, you can win in the marketplace. You know, today you need that, but the, you also need great um, technologists, great develop, web developers for the shopping experience online. You need um, um, data scientists today because it's it's how do you understand the behavior of the of the shopper and and, and predict and how do you move um, you know towards you know towards that and you also need wonderful fulfillment people you know people from either from warehouses to the logistics people because it's about you know shipping to stores it's shipping to consumers it's picking up in stores so it's a much more complex you know environment so for us it's about how do we find other channels to generate profitability, you know, for for the customer, um, you know, and 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 not about necessarily, you know, yes, we're always vigilant about costs and we're trying to manage it that way, um, but it, we it's not about one answer. It's not as as black and white as you know reduce reduce costs of a, of a store and you're going to win because 
20, you know, up, I think close to 20% of our business are, are, are coming from other, uh, from other channels. And it's also trying to go out and, 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 and win internationally. And you know, we've just opened an online business in, uh, in, in Hong Kong that's selling in, into China and, uh, and, and uh, expanding our, 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 our re I got an applause, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, so I think it's about broadening and making the pie, the, the absolute pie, pie bigger for us. Teresa, can I file on with yes. a quick one? Jared, of course, full employment would be a, a number one uh, solution. Um, but as well, I think a stepping back observation about the unions and the union role is that voids get filled. And our uh, union participation rate is dropping. Um, what is it, 7.8 now? Private sector. Private sector. Private sector. Private sector. Yeah. OK, so, so it's, it's dropping. And um, to some degree, but not entirely, Part of the reason that this movement is happening is because unions are not representing as many workers on these self-same issues that they have represented. So, you know, it used to be case by case, you know, if you were a retail worker, you had your retail worker union dealing on these scheduling issues inside your retail operation. If you were in a different kind of beast, you know, you had that union working on it. But it's, that's not there. So this is filling a void in some degree. Lots of other reasons as well. You know, the technology and all of the change there with just-in-time scheduling. But there's a stepping back observation too, I think. Susan, would you want to participate in that on the role of unions? Oh, or I would. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, twist my arm. <laughs> you know, I think that when we think about the role of government, for example, going back to the role of consumers, that one of the um, just absolutely kind of dysfunctional systems, I would say, in the US is how uh, unions are kind of organized in, in terms of the laws around that. I mean, historically, right, we've got some Macy's stores that are unionized and some not. We've, you know, it's by the workplace. And when we think of the retail workforce and the high turnover rates, it makes it very difficult to organize any, any one place. And so, um, you know, we do have wonderful um, groups like uh, the Retail Action Project and the Center for Popular Democracy that are helping to fill this void. But we know from that there is also a role uh, of, you know, kind of unions here. And I think one of the things that we have to think about is that because we don't have a lot of st labor standards, is that the quickest, easiest way to, you know, kind of cut costs is to cut you know, to reduce wages to about the lowest possible. We do have minimum wage laws, but we don't have minimum hour laws. There are no laws that guarantee anybody even an hour of work. And so it's such an easy way to adjust. And it, those kind of short-sighted, are very short-sighted solutions to, to being profitable and to being productive. And so I think that, um, you know, when, when people reach out and say it's the globalization, I'm just not buying it. Um, I mean, how much profit is enough? And when we talk about profitability, we're really very much talking about, you know, kind of often, you know, the goods that are sold. And I think increasingly in the world of business and in marketing, we know that it's not just about the merchandise. It's about having that consumer experience. <laughs> Right? We can get a lot of cheap stuff a lot of places. 
But people in retail can add value to what they do. They can make it be so that you feel good about what you're buying, you've picked up the right thing, and it's beyond just buying a lot of different mm -hmm. goods. And so there's a good business reason for employ yeah. you know, employers to invest in their you know, they go beyond like, you know, if we're always in this cost containment thing and it's the cost, every, the whole world is going down that path and we're all going down to the bottom. Mm -hmm. More questions, please? Yes, ma'am, in the front. Yes, I have a question for you. Thank you. You've talked a little bit about ways that Macy's has benefited from implementing the employer push um, scheduling. I'm blanking on the name of it was, the My, oh, my, my Schedule, schedule plus. plus. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I'm wondering, have you done any return on investment type studies to see, to measure, to see how in fact, you know, have we lowered turnover or have we yeah. reduced our, you know, rehired costs or any, yeah. any other things? Yeah, no, thanks. It's, it's a great question. Um, because, right, because the operations people want to see the measurement, right? And, and, and it is app, and we've seen it in a number of places. One is on, on employee retention, because we're, Overall, our input of candidates has been declining. You know, um, the number of people that are applying for, you know, we get, um, you know, each year. So we have to, it's more and more important to retain the talent that we have and engage them and, 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 and keep them. You know, it's like, you know, the saying, you know, it's cheaper to keep the customer you have than trying to, to find a new one. So knowing that's an imperative. So we measure it, one, on our employee engagement and through, through engagement, we've uh, looked at models, you know, of dissecting the engagement to say what predicts retention, what predicts um, the customer service model. So you can, you know, have that chain. I think Sears pioneered that years ago, right? The sort of the model of an engaged workforce leads to an engaged customer, and so on. So we will look at at, at what that return is for our for our associates. Number one, I think two, turnover itself. We look at it an absolute basis and. You know, and I've worked in other retailers before, um, and we, you know, the turnover we've experienced at, at, at Macy's is significantly lower, and uh, and probably because we do have a a, a a bigger mix, probably a full timer than part time than you see in maybe especially specialty retail. But I think overall, the it, it's about the it's about the values we give the employees, uh, not the ones we put up on the wall, sorry, but the ones that we actually, you know. Uh, you know, give them the, the, the trust and the empowerment piece. I think that piece has led to a lot of anecdotal feedback as well. So I think even if you can't quantify it, you could verify it. And I think it just, and it's the right, we just think it's the right thing to do. Um, and, it's, it's, and it's been, like I said, 98% of our shifts get filled without a single on-call employee in, in the company. So um, it's, and nobody gets sent home involuntarily. You know, you know it's, it's something that we, we think pays us much more in dividends than, you know, than the cost you would save if we had that bad practice or so, or that, you know, that practice. But again, each retailer is different. Each retailer has their own economics, and, and what we do at Macy's we think is right for Macy's. I think we have time for one more question. I'll take this, this woman up front, please. Thank you. Uh, it strikes me that often doing the right thing is often profitable also. And I'm reminded of a wonderful seminar we had here with Dr. Zainab Tem, who is a professor at MIT uh, Business School. And she wrote a book called The Good Job Strategy. And she lays out an analysis showing that companies that pay their workers well, cross-train them, listen to the workers, do the predictable scheduling, actually make more money for the very reasons you're talking about. Employee satisfaction, employee retention, 
so it just honestly baffles me. I mean, thank you, Macy's, for seeing it and doing the right thing, and I'm glad you're benefiting from it. But it baffles me why more companies don't understand when you treat your workers well, you're going to do better as a company. Your workers are your frontline interface with your customers. They're an asset, not just a cost to your company. And the more companies see that, the more benefit and profit the companies are going to make. Why aren't more companies doing what Macy's is doing? Susan, maybe you Susan. Want to take yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think I'm going to come back to a point that Jody raised earlier, and that is there's often a really big disconnect between how corporate people think what they think they're doing and what's actually going on in workplaces. Um, and I think part of that is because there's not, you know, given that I study these things, you know, of course, I'm going to come back to the things that I study. Um, but, you know, the way that accountability gets moved down all the way to the front lines, people have these conflicting accountability practices that drive pretty irrational behaviors, if you look at it, for, you know, that um, have these, you know, kind of short-term positive outcomes, but long-term costs. And um, so often, you know, people ask me all the time, like I get, you know, I get into these companies t to, you know, do hard studies with hard data. Right now, Joan Williams and I are, we're working with The Gap and we've got access to payroll data, personnel data, sales data, you name it, we get it. And they say, how can they let you lose in there? Right? And the reason is they want to do better and they really don't know on the top necessarily what's going on. At, at the bottom, and so, um, you know, and, but I would not be so naive just to say to think that, that, that knowing that will make a difference. What we also need is we need examples like this of how to do difference. It's one thing, right, for all of us, we have this in our own lives. We can see the problem, I wish I could do that differently, but then do we do it? We need to have steps, right, and, that are identified and some technical assistance, I think, to employers that can show them that it's not necessarily, you know, rocket science here. Um, and that many of them already have the tools in place in their technology to deliver greater stability and predictability to their workers. I'll let that be the last word. Thank you. So thank you all, and thank you all for coming. And I just want to say um, this is it for us for 2015, but we'll be back uh, next year with a conversation in January on inclusive economic development and implications for better jobs. Um, so in the meantime, happy holidays, and um, be nice to those retail workers. So thank you. <laughs> Right, that's a suggestion, right? Don't, don't yell at your retail room. Okay, go ahead. Thank you so much.